podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. If you are suffering from codependency, you're not alone. Codependency is widespread in our world today, and learning to acknowledge how we entangle, enable, attach, and cling to others in unhealthy ways allows us to eventually learn to reclaim our personal self-worth, says Lisa A. Romano. In this episode, Lisa talks about narcissism, codependency, and how to return to our true selves. Lisa A. Romano is a certified life coach and best-selling author, as well as a popular YouTube vlogger. She's also the creator of the 12-week breakthrough coaching program and the Master Your Reality Coaching program. Lisa is known as an expert in the field of codependency and narcissistic abuse. She believes what is wrong, it's not us, it is only our programming. Lisa believes understanding the self is the key to liberating the self. Her books include The Road Back to Me, My Road Beyond the Codependent Divorce, Loving the Self Affirmations, Codependent, Now What?, and Quantum Tools to Help You Heal Your Life Now. Here is the interview with Lisa A. Romano. In your own words, who is Lisa A. Romano? Um, Lisa A. Romano is somebody that believes that it is important that people understand how their childhoods have affected them. It's important that people understand that there is love and light within them, but that the idea that the world is, we are conscious and unconscious at the same time can impact our ability to find that light. And so I'm somebody that has that believes that through uncovering my childhood programming um, and facing my codependency and 
figuring out what I could do to change what was wrong with me. That was really at the core of why I was living as a, such, uh, such an unsatisfactory life. I realized that there was light inside of me, but I had been programmed to believe that I was bad and I was not good enough. And I'm somebody now that wants to teach people to believe in that light. And I also want to teach them how to find that light. Because when you find the light inside of you, you not only change your world, but you change the world. That's beautiful. Thank you, Lisa. Do you agree that the idea that both narcissists and those who become their targets navigate the world through the lens of a false self? I, I think I'm not so sure it's a false self for the empath. I think if we're talking about a codependent that who is highly empathic, that might be the case. But an empath is is highly intuitive, highly sensitive and, um, you know, is uh, can be drawn in by somebody else. They want to help. They want to rescue people. Um, and they might even pick up on the core shame of the narcissist and, and might think all this narcissist needs is to be loved. In the case of a codependent, in my humble opinion, uh, codependents are, they have the same core wound. They have, they're, they're shame based and they're out of focused and empaths can be out of focused and narcissists are self-focused. So an empath and a codependent can become the perfect target for somebody who is self-focused because codependents and empaths both are other focused. So empaths can pick up on the needs of other people and can tend to want to fix other people like codependents can, but I don't think all empaths are shame-based. I think some empaths are just highly intuitive and they're picking up on the wounds of other people and it's hard for them to uh, create borders and boundaries around these wounds. And um, it's easy for them to pick up on, like I said, the needs of others. And in that space, they're, they're, they're unable to protect themselves from narcissistic others. I, I don't know. I hope that made sense. Yes, yes, it does. So in a way, you're separating codependence and empath. Yeah, they're not exactly yeah. the same. There are some people that that don't even think that the, the term empath is is a, a true term. Um, you know, they they don't believe that that's even a true term. I, I, you know, I think that it's possible to be born highly, highly intuitive and highly, highly empathic and not know. If you think about like I've I've read stories about psychic mediums that were their whole life, they had panic disorder or anxiety attacks, and they were picking up on the energies of other people, but they didn't know that they were psychic. Um, so I would think that like psychics are highly empathic. A codependent is different. You can have a highly intuitive codependent, but codependents have also suffered attachment trauma and they don't feel good enough. And in the taking care of other people, and being validated through the taking care of someone else, they're finding their sense of self-worth. Unfortunately, a narcissist will exploit that and will demand that a codependent who is shame-based take care of them. Yes. Um, do you feel like being a codependent is um, a problem? Yes. Being a codependent is absolutely a problem because 
when you are when you're suffering from the codependent mind, you don't have a healthy sense of self. You know, um, you are outer focused. You tend to people please. You lack boundaries. You're like I said, you're shame based. You don't feel good enough. Um, you're a doer. You're constantly doing and doing and doing and doing and anticipating the needs of others. And you could be increasingly secretly resentful because you don't have the life skills to set a boundary with somebody. Um, it's, it's not healthy to be codependent. Right. But I, the way I, I see it, um, I don't think we can become um, independent from one another. Uh, we are we are deeply connected, all of us. I think that this, I think it's important that we become interdependent, meaning, you know, in other words, like a codependent's entire world revolves around other people and they lack a sense of self, which is not independence, right? And so healthy people, they have independence, but they're choosing to love or engage or to nurture another person who is also independent and respectful um, and is able to reciprocate love and empathy in return. Codependents attract people who do not reciprocate. They are causing their own suffering or deepen their suffering. They're acting it out. They, we're all programmed and we all recreate our childhood wounds because we're all unconscious. And in my opinion, the world is holographic. And so if I was, if my mother was codependent and I observed her cater to my father, who is highly narcissistic, that becomes a pattern of behavior. This has become, this becomes my norm to cater to people, to anticipate their needs, to put myself last. This becomes my norm. Um, and I am actually recreating because I'm also unconscious. I'm recreating these patterns and I am extremely lonely. I continue to attract people that need to be taken care of, that need constant validation, that need to have me mirror back to them how awesome they are. You know, even though I don't get any healthy mirroring back to me. So yes, you know, I, I it is a, it's a, you are create, you're in the midst and recreating your own suffering. It makes sense. Is a narcissist also a codependent? I think narcissists are codependent. Absolutely. They can't, a narcissist, you know, could never, you ever hear of a one man show? Like so if you, if you go on, if you go, sometimes you, you go to a show and it's just, it's one person on stage and they do the entire show. It's a one man show. Oh yeah. Narcissists can't live in, 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 in uh, solitary. They, they need other people to mirror back to them this um, false self. So they are codependent, but when I say, uh, when we're talking about codependency and we're, we're trying to identify a codependent from a narcissist, then the codependent is catering to the needs of the other, whereas a narcissist is also codependent, but needs to be catered to. Yeah, to himself, herself. Right? Yes, um, yes. Yeah, it makes sense too. How does the false self of a narcissist develop? Well, a narcissist is an extremely, extremely, extremely wounded adult. Mm. They have been demoralized. You know, they feel devalued. And they have decided that the world is a very safe, uh, unsafe place. 
very early on. And they they identify, they're so far removed from their true self. So that so the false self is like a buffer between them and their true self, which they see on, on some level is very weak and very vulnerable. And those are all bad things. So they develop this false self, this grandiose, confident, you know, bigger than life, uh, false self that they want you to believe in and they want to believe in. So they never have to ever touch that space inside of them that feels vulnerable. What is the difference between a narcissist, sociopath, and a psychopath? Well, all psychopaths are narcissists, but all but not all narcissists are psychopaths, which is interesting. And psychopaths, you know, the general consensus is that psychopaths are born that there are uh, brain issues, like a psychopath's brain is different than a sociopath's and a narcissist. So a psychopath, a psychopath, the area of the amygdala, their brain, the, uh, the area of the brain that is uh, very sensitive to pleasure is overly stimulated, but the area of the brain that is related to emotions is under sensitive. And so psychopaths, don't react to emotions the way a healthy person would. Their brain just doesn't register. So you could you could say to you can scan the brain of a psychopath and um, ask them to read the word cancer and then read the word book, and they'll have the same emotional reaction to both. Like they don't. So words mean nothing. So that's why you can beg for your life with a psycho to a psychopath, and they'll kill you anyway. And then go have a sandwich. So there's they can't form bonds, healthy bonds with people. Where sociopaths can form bonds with people, but very rarely. Sociopaths are not, they don't have the self-control a psychopath has, or so a psychopath has control. They're all manipulative, um, which is really interesting. But psychopaths have no conscience. A sociopath can feel bad about doing something but they'll do it anyway. So socio, sociopaths, it's said that they, they, they can be um, conditioned into antisocial behavior as a way of life. So if you think of a child who, let's say a foster child, you know, I don't mean to stigmatize anyone, but just say a, a, a child that has been placed into this extremely violent home, you know, and has a criminal for a foster parent, you know, this child wasn't born into this criminality, but taking advantage of people becomes a way to survive, right? Um, a nar- narcissists are, they can also um, have empathy, but they lack empathy to the degree of a healthy person. And a narcissist can um, actually feel remorse, but the moment they feel remorse, they'll turn it around and blame you. They won't really um go too deep into taking responsibility for why they're doing something. Um, I'm trying to think of what other, what are the differences? So, I mean, I hope that that, that makes sense to you. Yes. Yeah. How can we distinguish uh, the uh, personality disorder, uh, narcissistic personality disorder from self-confidence from healthy narcissism? So, so health narcissism is essential. Healthy narcissism is essential. You want to raise a child with healthy narcissism, a child that has an eye 
right? A child that knows who they are, a child that can set goals and loves themselves so much that they're going to wake up every day and they're going to set goals and they're going to achieve those goals. But, you know, we can have somebody on the uh, on the extreme end of the spectrum with narcissistic personality disorder um, and this gets completely turned on its head. So somebody who is self, let's say, self-confident, they they can be self-confident and have empathy for others, right? They Somebody with self-confidence and, and healthy narcissism can feel remorse. They can engage and they can also change. So if you have if you have a friend who you think is self-centered or has some narcissistic traits, you can and but who's not narcissistic, doesn't have the disorder. You can say to her, listen, you know, Maria, you know, we, when you did that, you know, I felt minimized. And Maria can be self-reflective and say, I'm so sorry, you know, and she can change. Uh, but a narcissist, somebody that is on the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, will feel enraged if you question them. Um, they'll lash out if you dare suggest that they've done anything wrong. You know, a narcissist will exploit you. You know, if you uh, do not reflect back to them, the self, the false self that they want, they need for you to reflect back. So narcissists generally don't change. They lack empathy, whereas somebody who has healthy narcissism or is, or is even self-centered, they can, they can have empathy and they can change. And their agenda is not to persecute you if you don't do what they want you to do. They're not out there. They don't feel entitled either. A narcissist will exploit you. They feel entitled to exploit you and they lack empathy for sure. And that's just not the case with somebody with healthy narcissism. Right. Um, wow. Do you think it's possible a relationship between um, somebody who has a disorder and somebody who is a um, compassionate person? Mm -hmm. So in a way that compassionate person is giving him, her, what they need it's not falsehood they are being honest they're just being they're loving them beyond their problems with the, the disorder i don't think i honestly if we're talking about narcissistic personality disorder unless that person is in treatment with the trauma specialist who or a psychotherapist that is knows that they're treating the disorder and unless the person with the disorder is actively uh working on themselves I think that a compassionate person, it's, it's fine to have compassion for somebody who has this disorder, but somebody with this disorder is unable to have compassion for the person with compassion. And so the problem is that, you know, and narcissistic personality disorder, if you think of it as a tree, right? And if you think about compassion and adoration, you know, um, and empathy, as water to these roots. You are just fueling this disorder. That's the problem. And so, you know, very oftentimes, you know, the, 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 what helps a person with narcissistic personality disorder is not tolerating this type of behavior. Um, it's by, you know, not engaging. It's by saying I, a boundary detaching and saying, you know, I care about you and I and I see why you are this way, but I can't engage with you because relationships should be 50 50. I should be able to um, feel seen and um, I should not be afraid that 
you know, the minute I don't adore you or the minute I don't have compassion for you, you're going to persecute me. I shouldn't have to live that way. I think it's great to have compassion for people, even compassion for narcissists, but, you know, um, from a distance. So I think what you're saying is that compassion will, cannot solve the problem. A lot of times we think that compassion and love can perform miracles, change the world and change people. But uh, you're saying that's not really the case. Well, if we're talking about pathological narcissism, no. If we're talking about psychopathic narcissism, no. Um, if we're talking about, if we're adding love and compassion to the equation and this person that we love is a narcissist and they acknowledge I have a problem, you know, and they are actively seeking treatment. I think that's awesome. But, you know, pouring compassion on someone. And uh, in, in this case, you're just fueling, you're just fueling their false self. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. That would be the dark side of compassion. I have heard yeah. about that. Yeah. You wrote, Narcissistic abuse hurts like no other pain. This is because narcissists know they have to gain access to your heart in order to cripple you from the inside out. Right. Do you think that narcissists actually plan to act the way they do or their behavior sort of unfolds from their inability to understand themselves and their issues? I think if we're talking about a psychopathic narcissist, I think that they can actually plan it, which is really scary. Yes. Really scary. I dated somebody who um, sought me out and, um, you know, learned everything he could about me. And he had seven other women that he was doing this to at least. And so that was planned. That was premeditated. But I think that the garden variety narcissist, somebody who doesn't is not aware that they have these core issues of shame. I don't think so. I think like I think that you worded it beautifully that this behavior unfolds. You know, they they're very good at uh, reading people's vulnerabilities. They're very good at understanding on some level, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that if I can figure out what that person's vulnerabilities are, I can use them against them. I can exploit them. And uh, I can stay in a dominant role. Narcissists, it's, narcissism is about dominance, you know. And so, you know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, you know, I, I think it's it, this is not a black and white issue. I think for some it might be. But I think for most people who are on the spectrum, I don't think it's conscious, which is scary because when you have a conversation with them and you say, listen, you know, you love bombed me when I met you. You were so attentive. You pretended to care about the same things that I cared about. You know, six months later, you don't care about those things at all. And then in the narcissist's mind, they can't conceive that this could possibly be true of them. Right. So you're seeing their, you're seeing the real side of them and they don't want that. So they're actually convicted and they believe that you are crazy. And that's what that's one of the things that I find so maddening about dealing with somebody on the spectrum, because they're so convinced that they're not this way, that this is just your weird version of them. Right. So you said that they cannot change unless they um, sort of acknowledge their personality disorder and they seek treatment yes. and all that. But are they aware? What is the level of awareness of their behavior? 
I don't know. I think, and like I said, I think that, you know, the word narcissist, you know, is, it gets thrown around a lot, you know? Um, and I think that that is, that we have to be really, really careful about that. I think that we have to understand that healthy narcissism is good. So that means, you know, we have to be careful about who we label a narcissist, you know, just because someone disagrees with us doesn't mean that they're a narcissist, right? So, but we're looking for certain markers, somebody who feels entitled, somebody who, you know, um, lacks empathy for you, for other people, somebody who tends to think that they're always right, they're never wrong, somebody who lies, somebody who is emotionally manipulative. These are, and this is a consistent behavior. Um, it's, it's something that we have to really be, be aware of. And so in terms of their level of awareness, narcissists are not aware that they're narcissists. Remember that they, they have developed a false self and this false self is intelligent. This false self is respectable. This false self is, it could be even a martyr. This false self could be altruistic in nature. They can really see themselves as saviors. There are plenty of preachers you know, who are narcissistic. There are plenty, plenty of priests, you know, who are narcissistic and rabbis who are narcissistic, you know? Um, and so it's important that we recognize that a narcissist does not see themselves as a narcissist. That's why, you know, knowledge is so important and educating people is so important and not, and not for the sake of pointing the finger and saying, you know, that person's a narcissist. It's so that you can become socially aware of predator-like personalities so that you can avoid them. So, so that you can, you can, you know, become disentangled from somebody who is emotionally and psychologically manipulative. It's important that we recognize that these, these types of people do exist. So we're looking for patterns of behavior and we're also looking to pay attention to how we feel when we're engaging this person. If we feel invisible, if we feel unheard, if we feel manipulated, if we feel like we have brain fog, like we're confused, you're not supposed to feel confused in a loving relationship. Right. There's supposed to be, you know, flow. You know, this is supposed to be a reciprocal, respectful relationship that's mutually satisfying, that grows, that doesn't feel stuck and stagnant. You're not supposed to be crying every other day. You know, it's not supposed to be high, high highs and low, low lows. It's supposed to be pretty consistent. What about a relationship between two narcissists? Would that kind of relationship survive? So psychopaths are generally the the you know of you know the you know people with antisocial personality disorder, let's say, or you know, or under that umbrella. Psychopaths are the ones that have trouble with emotions. Where narcissists do feel, they do feel, and they get they're triggered very easily. But what they lack is empathy. For the other person. And so, but here's the thing, as long as narcissists are both feeding their own narcissism. So you think about a really, really Adonis like gorgeous guy, you know, and a really like ridiculous female goddess, right? And they, when they look at each other, like it's, I'm just saying in terms of narcissist, if we're talking about narcissistic people now. So the really, really gorgeous guy is in this relationship with this guy, this girl because she's gorgeous and it makes him look good. And this really, really gorgeous female is in this relationship with this really, really gorgeous guy because it makes her look good, right? So they're feeding off of each other. But the minute the one 
no longer serves the other, the relationship is over. They wouldn't have the tolerance because they're not uh, empathetic, like you said. They, they they lack empathy. Yeah, they lack yeah they lack empathy for one another. If you're talking about two narcissists, the female, let's say we're talking about in this situation, the female narcissist is not with this guy because she loves him. You know, she's she's in this relationship because of how she believes being with this guy reflects onto her false self. Look how wonderful I am. I'm so beautiful. See how beautiful I am. I'm able to attract this type of a man. So, you know, and as long as as long as he feels the same way, they'll have a relationship, but it won't be built on anything that's meaningful. Yeah, it makes sense. So let's say the girl, let's say the girl gains 30 pounds. Relationship's over. Wow. Let's say the guy, the guy, um, you know, begins to feel insecure, you know, and uh, loses a job and he needs to lean on her emotionally. Relationship's over. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Now we're bringing two, um, I don't like the word diseased, but uh, I would say two people, yeah, ill um, together. Mm -hmm. We can't get anything healthy out of that. No. What kind of love do you think a narcissist can offer? I think that, well, you know, I think that narcissists, it's a, see, you know, to me, when I, language can get us in trouble. Words can get us in trouble. So when I, when I say, and my husband and I have had this discussion so many times, you know, when I say love, I mean, I love you unconditionally, meaning that, you know, I love you as you are. I don't expect you to change, but I've also chosen you and you and I have very similar core values. So it's easy to love you. Right. So I'm not going to be with somebody who is difficult to love. I'm not going to I'm not going to be with somebody whose core values are not in alignment with mine. It's a very difficult relationship. Right. Um, Doesn't mean I can't love somebody who's got different values. It just means in terms of a partnership, I'm probably going to do better with somebody who has similar core values, who seems sees the world similarly to me. Now, that is the situation with my husband and I, but we're not exactly the same. There are things that he believes that I don't believe, and I don't expect him to change that. Right. But I do have boundaries. So if, if, if he or I did something that violated our core beliefs, both of us know that we wouldn't tolerate that no matter how much we love that person, we love ourselves and we wouldn't be with somebody who uh, deceived us. We wouldn't be with somebody who violated our true core values, you know, somebody that went out and hurt an animal. Like I can't be with somebody who's hurting animals, you know, or I can't be with somebody who's stealing from people. I can't be with somebody who can rationalize really like antisocial behavior. I can love that person, but I, I don't necessarily have to be with that person. Now, when it comes to a narcissist, this is just my opinion. You know, um, I think that they can love but I think it's a different type of love. And I think that narcissists can love you, but only if you continue to supply them with a narcissistic supply. So like we use the example between the the, um, the really gorgeous female, you know, and the gorgeous male, you know, a narcissist will love you as long as they're getting something in return, as long as there's a payoff, right? So they can love you. But the minute there, there, this payoff is no more, or you begin to need them, then the a narcissist is cannot love you. Right. You're saying that the love of a narcissist is conditioned. Absolutely. 
You have to, you have to play their game their way and then they'll tolerate you. Then they'll love you. You play by their rules. You understand that they make the rules. You don't give them a hard time. You don't question them. You don't raise your voice to them. You don't, um, you know, question what they do with their money. They can question you, but you can't question them. You know, you have to acquiesce to them. And as long as you play, play, you're a good girl or you're a good boy, then they'll love you. You mentioned um, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that's really possible between two human beings? I, I think and this is the thing. I think that you can unconditionally love somebody. Right. And in terms of you can unconditionally love anybody. You can you can unconditionally love a psychopath, but then we have to define what does love mean to you? I can love somebody from afar and send them love and send them light and not expect them to change and understand that I'm not here to alter this person's soul's evolution, that even a psychopath has come to evolve their soul. And I don't have to get involved with that. And I can still love them and wish them well. Some people think that You know, when I say I love somebody, that means that I am I am in a relationship with that person. I think that we can be unconditionally loving, but I mean, we have to be realistic. Am I going to unconditionally love somebody who punches me in the face every Sunday? Am I going to tolerate that abuse? I have to be unconditionally loving to myself first. So unconditional love. You know, um, I think the purest form of unconditional love is the love that we give the self, you know, in, in terms of, you know, um, loving other people. I think that we can be unconditionally loving, but I don't think it's possible to be that way without boundaries, without knowing where our limits are, because I'm not going to I can unconditionally love someone. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to allow them into my home, feed them breakfast, lunch and dinner, allow them to steal from my pocketbook you know, allow them to steal from my daughters, allow them to abuse me, allow them to abuse my husband. I'm not going to allow that. Right. That is my next question about establishing the boundaries. If you work with one or you have to live with one, it's your father, your mother. What advice would you give? I think it's important that, you know, if you think that you're dealing with somebody who is a narcissist, You know, first of all, it's, you know, just just acknowledging that's so heavy. It is so difficult to deal with somebody who's narcissistic because it goes against nature, meaning that we all come here to bond. We all come here to experience empathy for one another. And you're just never going to get that with a narcissist. So, you know, just acknowledging that it is absolutely exhausting to have to deal with and work with and co-parent, you know, or be the child of a narcissist, a uh, child of a narcissist, just first off acknowledge that it's, it's a difficult burden, you know, know that it's going to be challenging. And then the first thing that I would say is it's really important that we detach. It's really, really important that the first thing that we do is that we understand that detaching from the narcissist emotionally, um, disengaging, is very important. Don't answer any personal questions with the narcissist. This is you defining a boundary. Um, remember what I said earlier, narcissists, if you think of a narcissist as a giant tree and think about their root system, you know, they need water, they need, they need certain minerals. And the more you supply that tree with adoration and love and this false sense of self, like 
as long as you mirror it back, this tree is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's important that you understand that one of the best things that you can do is disengage. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the gray rock method. So you become, you act disinterested, right? So it's like you stop watering the soil. You, You become unresponsive, almost catatonic. Like completely like, okay, whatever to their, everything that they say, you have minimal dialogue. So they ask you, how's your day? You say it was fine and you don't divulge any personal information, right? Very important that you try to give them like one word answers. The answer should be dull. You know, don't ask them questions. Don't ask them about their day. Don't ask them why and do not be defensive Um, because the more drama you bring to a relationship with the narcissist, let's say you work in an office with a narcissist, you want to disengage, you want to not roll your eyes, you want to not challenge them, you want to don't make a big deal that you think this person is a narcissist, don't tell anybody you think this person's a narcissist, do what you can to pull your energy from the relationship, see if you can get moved to the other side of the office or even get moved around in the company, do what you can to disengage, right? And also if you have to, like if you have to co-parent with a narcissist, then don't talk to them unless you have to, right? Um, if they're dropping the kids off f- from, let's say visitation, don't get in the car and talk to him or her. You know, um, don't call them during the week, stick to the facts. Only talk to them about facts. You know, Johnny has a play on Friday at four, the tickets are in your mailbox. That's it. Goodbye. You don't have to have any other conversation. But the, I say the most important thing is to disengage. And then also, if you can have compassion, right, being that you brought it up before, for me, you know, when I realized what was really going on with my ex-husband, I ended up being able to detach and disengage. And I was able to see that he was a very wounded person. And he was afraid of being abandoned, severely afraid of being abandoned. And when I asked for a divorce, that triggered him. And how dare I want to divorce him? And he needed to punish me for that. So when I began to have compassion for why he was the way he was, and at the same time put distance between me and him, that helped me not take things so personally. Which I can imagine was really a hard thing to do for you. Oh, for sure. empathetic, sensitive, um, It was very difficult. I think that, you know, I think the most difficult part was not knowing what I was dealing with and even not acknowledging that I was codependent and that I was stuck in this dynamic seeking his validation and his permission. You know, codependents don't feel like they have a right to feel their feelings and they look to the outside world to say, yes, Lisa, you're unhappy and you have a right to be unhappy. I didn't have a a healthy sense of self. I had no self-esteem. You know, I didn't know how to acknowledge my own emotions because I was taught to invalidate my emotions, which made me a perfect, you know, prey for somebody who could could tap into those vulnerabilities and exploit them for their own need for dominance over another person, which is what happened. Wow. I also can imagine how hard it is for um, children of narcissists Mm -hmm. because the connection, we we crave connection. And that is really hard to disengage how you proposed and especially detach emotionally too. Oh, yes. I think that, you know, it's it's very difficult when you may realize that 
you know, and I, and I see it in my coaching program. So we have, you know, codependents who are married to a, a criminal, a narcissistic person who is also a criminal. So maybe had sociopathic tendencies and who was highly, highly abusive to his children and may have even manipulated the court system and gotten custody of the children and abused them terribly. You know, now the children, you know, developed a false sense of self, you know, and in extreme cases, we have children who have been so abused by sociopathic or psychopathic parents or narcissistic parents that they have to develop a false self. And now to be the parent, the other parent who has who is seeing this dynamic, you know, play out, it is absolutely devastating, absolutely devastating. And so you're right. It's 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 an awful experience. And we can only hope to help break the cycle. And codependents are willing to be self-reflective and say, what's wrong with me so I can fix it? And they are the hope in that family system to seek the light within and to shift the dynamic for future generations. Yes, I agree. And going back to one point from the beginning of our conversation and about mm-hmm. empath also navigating the world through the lens of their false self. Mm-hmm. And you said you're not sure about it. Mm-hmm. Why you're not sure about the false self that empath they also uh, embrace? Well, because, you know, and I mean, I could this is just my opinion. I could be wrong. But, you know, my understanding of empaths is that they're highly sensitive. They can lack boundaries. They um, have a deep sense of wanting to help the world and help others. But I'm not so sure that all empaths are coming from a wounded place, right? Um, uh, where they had to create a false self to, to survive. I believe it's possible to be born highly, highly empathic and, and to not be coming from such a wounded place, then there may be empaths that are coming from a very wounded place. And in fact, you know, I mean, that's a really good question. And again, I I don't, I don't, I don't like to see the world in black and white. I believe that there's a lot of gray and it's possible that, you know, um, anyone who considers themselves an empath, you know, um, could have been born highly sensitive and also because of their sensitivity, could have been abused, you know, and, um, you know, bullied. And that could also increase your empathy, your or your ability to have, uh, to feel other people's feelings and, and actually increase your sensitivity to others. I just, you know, if you're asking me my personal opinion, I'm not so sure that all empaths, again, I don't like to speak in black and white. I'm not so sure that all empaths are coming from, they're a false self, that it might be their true self is this highly empathic person um, that is just needs to learn how to set boundaries and needs to learn how to hold on to their own energy rather than uh, absorbing the energy of other people. Yes, I agree. Nowadays, from the understanding I have of empathy and compassion, I believe that being compassionate, mm-hmm. it's a better place, space to be, like mentally, emotionally, because compassion has to do with suffering as well, but suffering with others, but creating this space of healing. So that if you, you don't really, con- we don't connect with people deeply emotionally, so we can get lost and become disabled, so we can 
can do anything about the situation. We know exactly what's happening and we are able still to think about ideas of how to help them. I think of this thing about I need to be loved. This is what the narcissists, they really, they target us for. Do you sort of see what I'm trying to say about being an empathetic person and compassionate person? The difference? I think yeah, empathy in the purest form means that I'm not adding to or taking away from someone else's situation. It just means that I can have compassion for what they're going through, but I'm not going to make it about me and try to fix it. I'm just going to hold this space for this person. Let's say someone's dog dies, right? You know, I'm just going to hold that space and say, you know what, this is, I can see that you're suffering and I can see that this hurt you. And I'm just going to share this space with you. I'm just going to share this space with you. I'm not going to try to take your pain away. I'm not going to try to fix it. You know, I'm just going to share this space with you. And in terms of, you know, how do we become people who are no longer needy? I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're, if you're a needy person, you, you are prey because a psychopath, a sociopath, and a person on the end of the spectrum who has narcissistic personality disorder. So people who fall under the, the umbrella of antisocial personality disorder, they're very receptive and they can smell neediness out. And they will make you feel seen and they will make you feel heard and they will make you feel understood for the purpose of pulling you in so that they can learn what your vulnerabilities are and exploit them later, right? So it's very, very important. I believe that the most important thing that we can do is love ourselves and to have compassion and empathy for ourselves so that we full, we feel so full of self-love and self-compassion that we can get past the emotional mind and get to the rational mind. And when dealing with people, we can make rational choices about the people that we're loving or having sex with or having dinner with, right? It's not coming from the emotional needy amygdala. It's coming from the irrational mind. I love myself and I want to know if this person is actually, you know, a friend or foe. And I'm going to ask questions and, and I'm going to look for patterns and consistency and I'm not going to ignore red flags. Yes, I love that, mm -hmm. Lisa, about self-knowledge, self-examination, yep. being open to just know yourself yep. better. You wrote, the commitment to healing the wounds that cause us to feel spiritually starved for love to the point of craving love from the outside can lead us to recovery if we believe we are disciplined enough for the self-study. So how do you help those who believe they are disciplined enough to commit to healing those wounds? So, I mean, I do that in a, in a couple of ways. You know, the most hands-on ways is through one-to-one -one coaching, you know, and I help people learn to identify patterns and I help people find compassion for themselves because codependents have never, they, they well, not never, but codependents um, have very uh, neglected emotional attunement. So they've been abandoned to childhood emotionally or physically. Um, they haven't had healthy mirroring. So they don't know what it feels like to have something, somebody mirror back a healthy sense of self, like a healthy sense of worth. And so what I help 
people do is I help people develop empathy for this wounded inner child that has been so abandoned. And through having compassion for their experience, you know, they're able to heal shame because a lot of, a lot of us feel, and we don't even realize it, but a lot of us feel like I'm not enough, but on a very innate level, we've also, um, we've also assigned blame for not feeling enough. So I think the worst ill that that can fall upon somebody is to for them to well a couple of things think that God is outside of them instead of inside of them, but also this idea that we are not enough and it's our fault that we're not enough, which is shame, right? So there's something innately wrong with me, and that's why my mother treated me that way, or that's why my father treated me that way because there's something wrong with me. And so what I do is I help people through my 12-week breakthrough coaching program and through one-to-one coaching. And even through my, I also have a membership site. So these are all vehicles in which I help people develop compassion for the inner child. I, ha- I teach them how to validate the inner child. I help them how to heal, show them how to stay, stay in their bodies while they're experiencing the shame um, so they can transcend the shame. And then I teach them life skills. So it really is a process. First, we have to uncover it. We have to identify what's wrong because you don't know what's wrong. You can't fix it. So we identify what's wrong. We identify the why. We, have to def- we identify the what and the who. And then we move towards the how can we fix this? You know, because you can only, if you don't have life skills, if you don't know how to set a boundary, you're never going to be able to set a boundary. If you don't know how to process a difficult emotion without the need to dissociate, you're not going to be able to process those emotions and to move from the amygdala and the hippocampus to the prefrontal lobe where you can make, it's the rational mind, where you can make a decision about how you feel. Very oftentimes, codependents are reactive. So they have a feeling and they're impulsive and they react to that feeling. Maybe it's they go down the rabbit hole and they're experiencing shame. Um, and so I we identify the who, the what, and then we develop how, we develop life skills. And I teach people how to, it's really the path towards enlightenment, really, because codependency is living in the dark. And, um, you know, healing from codependency and narcissistic abuse is really a journey towards self-love, self-recovery, self-accountability, self-compassion, self-reliance. And uh, enlightenment, which is pretty cool. Yes, it is. I love listening to those who are genuine mm-hmm. and they come from the heart. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for that. Sure. What thank you. positive things have you learned from your relationship with a narcissist? Oh boy. Well, the n- number one thing was I learned that it was me, <laughs> meaning that you know I-, I live my life. If my life was a boat, I had so many holes in the boat but I didn't know it. And, you know, dealing with narcissists and and the last person, the last man that I dated, what I believe was a psychopath, like in every sense of the word, extremely intelligent, bright, calculating, manipulative. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, He had a criminal record, which I didn't know. Very good liar, all of that. That scared me because I introduced him to my children. And when I realized that I had ignored red flags and it came to light how bad this, this relationship really was, it was so 
mortifying and it was so humiliating, but it brought me to my knees, right? And it made me look at myself because when I thought about the last three men that I dated, they all had diff- they all had similar traits, but they were getting worse as I was as I was going on. And I realized I was the common denominator. And so it made me really stop and look at myself and get just get what are you doing wrong? And what I was doing wrong was I was ignoring red flags. I was ignoring the red flags. I was hanging on. I was coming from a place where I was dishonoring this guidance. And the last person I dated taught me to never do that again. That falls into self-knowledge. Yes, it was the ability to be truly, truly like naked with myself. Like, look at yourself. Look at what you're doing, your flaws. Look at all of it, Lisa. Don't look at some of it. Look for all of it. What are you doing wrong here? Because there's a pattern in there's a pattern in you that is attracting this, and you're the common denominator. Um, and so the ability to humility, it really made me really, really look at myself. Um, and it also, the positive thing that came out of it was, uh, again, humility is beautiful because it allowed me to look at myself in an entirely new way. I had self-compassion for the young woman who was taught to disown her feelings and who was taught to cling rather than let go. I had compassion for her. It also taught me to um, love myself first before I loved anyone else. Right. Um, the way you just spoke now sort of made me think about addiction. Do mm-hmm. you think that codependency is a kind of addiction? Yeah, I do. Yeah. You're, you're addicted. You can become addicted to people. You can become addicted to the cycle. Um, you can become ad- addicted to uh, the need to be needed right? Codependents need to be needed. And so I absolutely believe that codependency can be an addictive cycle. Thank you. What are three things about life you know for sure? Um, I, I know that we're all enough. I know that the human spirit is enough. I know that You know, in certain situations when it comes to genetics and we're talking about the brain that some people are born with, you know, a brain that doesn't work well. And um, that's unfortunate, you know, but I, I do believe that all people are enough. I know for sure that it is possible to awaken. It is possible to to um, heal from trauma from childhood. And I know for sure that if If you love yourself, you can, you love yourself, you truly love yourself, then you accept that you're not perfect. You accept that you're going to make mistakes. You accept that um, people have a right to their own opinion of you, even if it's wrong. You know, if you really, really love yourself, that you, you can be happy and you can define your life on your own terms and it will not be dependent on other people but you really really have to absolutely love yourself 
Being enough, that was the first one. And mm -hmm. then you also mentioned people who have been born with disorders mm -hmm. like psychopathy and narcissistic disorders. Mm -hmm. um, do you think they have, there's a reason for that to be? They have a, a purpose in the world as well? Well, I think, I think that in terms of, you know, when we're talking about psychopaths who are born with brain anomalies, you know, it's so hard for me to say, oh yeah, sure. You know, they have a purpose. I mean, you, you think about the serial killer who's killed 49 women and who's married, you know, and has a wife and three kids and no one knows what he's doing on the weekends. It's kind of hard to imagine that they have a purpose in the world, you know, like, and rationalize it, you know? And uh, I would not want to tell the the mother of a murdered daughter that, oh, you know, this your the psychopath that killed your, your killed your daughter has a purpose in the world, you know. I wouldn't want to be that person, you know. But in terms of if we're talking about, you know, um, you know, what can somebody who is unconscious, what can somebody who um, lives you know, it literally lives in a dark world. What can they teach us about uh, the world? I think that, you know, the, the people that I coach that have dealt with extreme abuses in their life, they ultimately will eventually, many of them get to a point where they say, you know, if he hadn't been so bad or if she hadn't cheated on me so many times or you know, if if she hadn't have humiliated me that time again, or if he hadn't have done this, I would have never, ever, ever really been forced to look at myself and be forced to love myself and let go and and realize that I deserve more. You know, so and I, I and I think that, you know, that's awesome that, you know, the dark teaches us about the light and the dark of the room and the darker the experience, the more we appreciate the light. The hungrier we are, the more satisfied we are with whatever meal shows up in front of us. Yes, yeah. So in a way, they do have a purpose, like the dark. So those who have the seed of greatness and goodness, that seed can only sprout in contact with the dark. I think in some cases, I think people who have the seed of greatness within them, you know, I think we all have that potential. Uh, psychopaths, they don't, right? Well, psychopaths, if they have a brain anomaly, if that, you know, that's, that's, we're talking about, which is so scary, you know, we're talking about a different person. I mean, someone who's not even human. But I do think, and if we're talking about people who have the seed of greatness within them and they've also suffered abuse in their life and they're playing small or they're toning themselves down or they're afraid of criticism or they hear themselves, you know, they have imposter syndrome, like, who am I? Who, who do I think I am? I can, who's going to listen to me? I can't do that. I can't go on stage. I can't sing. I can't give that speech. I can't do that. That person who, who uh, marries somebody with high narcissistic traits you know, that relationship and ending that relationship and through all the suffering, you know, because when you're dealing with a narcissist, you know, they, they, they use something called word salad, you know, crazy communication, circular conversations, you never get anywhere. Right. Um, and so when you finally say enough is enough, I cannot engage in this any longer. It's like, you're finally throwing yourself a life preserver. 
I think in that situation, you know, the person who has this amazing potential within them, you know, it's that experience breaking off from the narcissistic relationship, being battered to the point where they have to save themselves. I think that that that, that type of darkness can serve someone's light for sure. But there are people who, you know, come from very nurturing homes who have the seed of potential within them. And that's just beautifully nurtured throughout their lifetime because their parents are enlightened or their parents are attuned or they have a wonderful extended family of grandparents and aunts and uncles. So they they progress beautifully. But if someone's abused and they're living, you know, a codependent life and they're dealing with somebody who's constantly putting them down, that darkness can get so dark, it forces you to wake up. But you wouldn't say that is the, the purpose. What is your idea of God? You know, it's interesting. I, my idea of God is, I believe that God is within us. I believe that God is, I believe love is the strongest force on earth. I believe that it's a creative, nurturing energy. It's a creative force. So my idea of God is it's creative. It's nurturing. Um, it's expansive. It's about growth. It's just about a spiraling up. God is not about lack. God is about uh, evolution. And I believe that God exists in each of us and every single person is an individualized aspect of God. And we have come to recognize the God self. And so that's my opinion of God. Yeah, I like that. Most of us believe that whatever God is, is the ideal of greatness, of the best. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of hard for me, somebody like me, the way I think, to sort of look at a narcissistic person, a psychopath, as not having God, like not having the peace of God in them. It's mm -hmm. really hard for me to do that. Yeah, I think that, see, I think that this is the thing. I think that if um, it's important that we like uh, psychopaths are all narcissistic, but not all narcissists are psychopaths, right? So if we think about, if we think about what is, if somebody who has recognized their God self, right, is, is, is somebody who's blissful, right? So when you recognize that you're enough and you love yourself, it's really hard to love other people. So it's possible that a psychopath is, represents a human being that is in complete ignorance and denial to their God potential or their God self. Hmm. A narcissist is somebody who, of course, there, there, there is an aspect, of course, they're connected to God, but it's in most cases, their narcissism is related to severe abuse, right? And so they, and, and this false self, this false self is now protecting them from their their true self, which is they, I see as vulnerable and weak, but there is an inner self there, there, there is divinity before the abuse, right? So we have, a, we have a psychological self, we have a personality self. So the narcissist's problem is not their God self. They're not the problem with the narcissist is their personality self. And if we could heal a narcissist, then that narcissist would be able to embrace this vulnerable side of them without imploding, right? And they'd be able to have compassion for their experiences and heal their shame without imploding. Um, and then they'd be able to get to their innate divine self. 
and they'd be able to experience peace. They wouldn't have to dominate people and they would feel one with themselves and integrated. Once you integrate with yourself, then you can integrate with other people. I like that, Lisa. We all have God in us, all of us. Mm -hmm. But some of us, for some reason or or another, we choose, or maybe we don't choose. No, I don't think we choose. A psychopath, it's not a choice for them. They are in denial of the God in them, so they can't see it. And that, that could not be their fault. In other words, if you have a brain anomaly, right, and your brain is wired in, in such a way that it is not wired towards emotion, right? Remember that the psychopath's brain on a brain scan, the area of their brain that's responsible for emotions and empathy is, is underactive, right? So in order for me to have to feel human towards you, I have to be able to access that area of my brain. Now, does that psychopath have God potential within them? Yes but their brain or their hardware is not allowing them to access. Right. Oh, wow. It's like, uh, it's an obstacle. There's something that blocks. Yes. Why would somebody be born like in a human body, but be unable to, to express God? Yeah, I think, you know, who knows? I mean, see, this is the thing where when we talk about psychiatry, if psychiatry could blend spirituality, if science could, scientists that are looking at brain scans, if they could embrace the metaphysical, I think it would be an it would be an easier discussion to have. But you know, scientists are all about what the brain scan says. You know, so and psychiatrists, you know, they'll they'll you know, very psychiatrists generally don't look at brain scans, which is kind of hard to imagine. You know, every other doctor looks at the organ that they they're trying to fix, but psychiatrists aren't even looking at the brain. They're listening to what's coming out of a person's mouth. And if you're talking about a narcissist or a psychopath, they're very manipulative. Right. You know, I mean, you know, how many clients I've had who have said to me, my, my wife or my husband sat on the couch with a psychiatrist and manipulated the crap out of them. Oh yeah. And I watched it happen. And so, you know, if we could have a broad conversation and we, we could, you know, bring, you know, the science into it, and we can understand spirituality. You know, we had an open discussion that was intelligent. You know, it might be easier to to have that discussion and come away with answers. I think that people who are spiritual, you know, who are looking for the why, they might be looking for an answer that helps them make sense out of, you know, the world and why things happen. You know, I, for me personally, I believe that you know, if someone is if someone has a brain a, a brain issue, then could this could this have happened? You know, in in a generation, four or five generations back, right? Is that God's fault? That's not God's fault. Could there have been somebody who was was abusive? You know, very very abusive. You know, three generations back, and now this abuse has been handed down and handed down. And now the generations that come are just desensitized. That part of their brain is no longer active as a defense mechanism. We don't know. But I think that as people who are interested in in everything that's metaphysical and spiritual and, and also scientific, I think that we have to accept certain facts. Like, you know, psychopaths exist. Sociopaths exist, right? What are we going to do as spiritually enlightened human beings? 
I think that what we have to do is that we have to be very realistic and practical, but also spiritual and loving. So we offer compassion for people who, um, you know, have these issues, but we don't have lunch with them. We don't invite them into the house, into our house where our children are, because we understand they are wired a certain way and they don't have the ability to have empathy, which makes them a threat. This is why there are a lot of people out there who kind people, church going people who um, extend their homes to people in need and they end up being severely butchered or, you know, um, severely abused by somebody who they were not able to understand was, um, you know, was a sociopath or a psychopath. Yeah, that's great, Lisa. That's really great. The idea of not being naive. We just, we yeah. know what's happening. We embrace reality for what is. We understand yep. that. But yep. at the same time, we we can find that place in our hearts for compassion. It is the way it Absolutely. is, but I won't make it worse by criticizing, by yep. trying to, you know, label that That's person right. bad or calling names. That doesn't help anyone or right. anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How great. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, your future projects? Mm -hmm. Um. Well, we're, I'm merging two websites right now. The The main website will eventually be www.lisaaromano.com. Um, and I offer right now where we have two classes that are actually in progress, online classes. I have uh, the 12 week breakthrough coaching program where, like I said, you know, I bring people through the awakening phase and then the accountability phase and the ascension phase of recovery. And then I have a master class that teaches quantum tools that helps people understand the quantum nature of reality and how their emotions and how programming fits into that. And I also engage with people on my membership site. So it's a monthly membership. I give live group calls. They're recorded and I engage with people live. Um, that's always fun. Um, and it, they have their own online community, a private community of other people in the class. And um, that's just a really interesting website where I have a lot of programs that I've created just for the site. And if you're somebody who is disciplined to self-study, that's a really good site to get involved with because you can go, you can log on to the site and you can go to any category and find healing information and homework, journaling prompts, uh, programs, workbooks, um, and, and alike. So that's where you can find me. And we're looking to, um, you know, um, in the next year or so, we're going to do a bunch of live events and you can find all that information on my website. Sounds great. Sure. Thank you so much again uh, for your collaboration. Thank and you. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Okay, Lisa. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lisa A. Romano, please visit her website, lisaaromano.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aiden Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.